Hi, everybody. You know, the Dinner Party download wouldn't exist without listeners like you. True. If this podcast helped you dazzle your friends in 2013, please support it as part of your year-end giving. You can think of it as a tip for good service, yeah. but this time you get a tax deduction in return and a special gift from our show. Very special. It is. Donate at dinnerpartydownload.org. Welcome to the show. This is your icebreaker. Uh, this is Austin from Parquet Courts. I play guitar. I do a little singing. I was going to take up archery, but there's too many drawbacks. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner parties. You just got a joke from Austin Brown from the punk band Parquet Courts. As he said. That'll help break the ice. Their latest album, Light Up Gold, is appearing on tons of best of the year lists, and they're back on tour in January. Later, we'll speak with actor Jeremy Renner, one of the stars of the new hit movie, American Hustle. Other dinner party guests this hour include former poet laureate Billy Collins, music legend Nancy Sinatra, British singer-songwriter Nick Lowe, and Michelin-starred chef Michael Cimarosti. That is a fine table of people. Plus cocktails and a new Beyonce track. But first, let's start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Anger continues to bubble up in New Delhi over U.S. treatment of one of the country's diplomats. Peter O'Toole, made famous by his title role in Lawrence of Arabia, has died. Target says the security breach started just before Black Friday. It's one of the biggest data breaches on record. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He is now a columnist at VanityFair.com. Richard, thanks for still agreeing to chat with us. Well, you know, <laughs> I can slum it once in a while. Congratulations on, yeah. the, on the new job. Thank you. When you're not talking about that, what are you going to be talking about this weekend? This weekend, I'm going to be talking about a scientific study that finally figured out when is too soon. Meaning what? If someone makes a joke about a kind of topical thing that's maybe a little morbid or something, mm-hmm. people will respond with too soon. But it's always been kind of nebulous when too soon is. Yeah, cause it's too soon because it's not respectful of the of the right. tragedy. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Which is fair. So there's now some sort of formula to decide when too soon is. Well, yes. I mean, this study uh, was done. They had um, about a thousand people read tweets about Hurricane Sandy, and they found that 15 days after the storm made landfall, the surveyed people found that. The tweeted jokes were the least funny. Okay. So it's less and less funny for two weeks or so. Yeah. Two weeks is kind of the nadir of funny. So that's the height of too soon. But then the, the, so for, for anyone who wants to make jokes about you know dire topics, about 20 days later, day 36, mm-hmm. that was the height of funny. This Peak when, joke. Th- this is when people found the jokes the funniest. Okay. So comedians, basically, the first two weeks, they should actually do something like help people. Right. Yeah. Right. Something and then productive. 36, yep. then you can come out and be creepy and make jokes. Right. And that, by then, you've had time to workshop the jokes in your okay. head. You know, yeah. So it actually does makes sense. And then is it uh, funny ever after, basically, after that? Well, no. I mean, it, it dissipates in funny. They found it about day 99. It kind of reached another low. Mm. But that was less because they found it offensive and more just because the jokes were old by that point. Oh, All right. Yeah. Stale. Stale. The story's stale. Right, so we exactly. go from outrage to jaded in the yep. space of about three months. Like, this yeah. is why my Pompeii jokes never <laughs> go over. Well, <laughs> Except just now. That was funny. <laughs> Thanks. It was good. All right, Richard. Well, we'll have you back 36 days after something <laughs> bad happens. All right. That's fair. Yes. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a duck pond, but the pond is full of gin and the ducks are olives. <laughs> That's right. With pimento bills. Or something. I see them. I see them now. First, the history part. This week, back in 1997, the world got another reason to encourage kids to read instead of watch TV. Michelle Phillippe tells the tale. Concerned parents, you're right. 
cartoons really can be bad for you. Pokemon, get to the bed! Case in point, Electric Soldier Parigon, an episode of the hit Japanese cartoon Pokemon based on the Nintendo video game. If you've met a child in the last 20 years or so, they've probably told you all about Pokemon. But if not, all you really need to know is in 1997, four million kids watched the show in Japan alone. Which is where the Electric Soldier Parigon episode aired. The storyline was typical, something about traveling through cyberspace. But then, 20 minutes in, came a scene where the show's blobby yellow hero blew up some missiles. Suddenly, doctors around Japan fielded thousands of calls from frantic parents. Their children were getting nauseous, or passing out, or in some cases, suffering epileptic seizures. Within half an hour, close to 700 Pokemon fans wound up in hospitals. The cause? Paka Paka, an animation technique where the colors red and blue flicker on screen, strobe style, to simulate an explosion. When TV news aired the offending segment later, more people suffered seizures. Media around the world called it Pokemon Shock. The scandal also shocked Nintendo, especially the next day when its stock took a nosedive. Pokemon went off the air for four months, while doctors and politicians drew up new rules for cartoons, including how fast Paka Paka colors are allowed to flicker. As for Electric Soldier Paragon, the episode never aired again, even with the seizure-inducing scene edited out. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I am speaking with Nilton Venegas at Fugu Izakaya and Bar in downtown Los Angeles in the little Tokyo district, of course. Uh, Nilton, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire? You know, the whole uh, weird episode. I mean, it's just as strange and exciting maybe as my cocktail will be. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Better be a really bizarre cocktail. Yeah, well, hopefully no, no seizures will come about drinking this cocktail, but it'll Give you a nice little uh, head change, at least. A buzz, as most do. All right, so you're putting ice in a shaker. What is this called, by the way? Oh, so we're going to call this the Porygon cocktail. The Porygon, of course. Porygon cocktail. The flashing lights of the episode were blue and red. And we'll see how that looks in a cocktail in a minute. Oh, so it's going to be a multicolored it's cocktail? Gonna, yes, it's going to be very multicolored, for sure. <laughs> what we're going to do is grab Bombay Sapphire East. Bombay Sapphire East. This very nice gin is actually infused with a lot of Asian types of spices and herbs. And okay. we're going to get uh, a little Campari. Uh, here comes the red, the Campari. Campari. That's, of course, bitter. Let's add a little bit of cherry syrup. So more red. You're making sure red. this thing is red. <laughs> okay. Now this, this is very special. This is called Aladdin. Aladdin user, very nice Japanese uh, sake. And we're going to do a nice little shake in there. Remembering that we're using Campari, we're going to add a little sugar to the rim just to kind of balance it all off. You're pouring it right now, and it is very neon, almost pinkish red kind of color. So and now... More, oh, is this blue curacao? It's blue curacao, and it's just for the aesthetics. You are pouring that down a cocktail straw so that the blue settles to the bottom of the drink. So now you have a half and half color, which is blue and red. Oh, that is tasty. Considering how the uh, the bitter element of the Campari in there, this is like nice and sweet. 
unlike this episode in Japanese history. Cheers. And Brendan, a small correction. The name of Milton's plays is Izakaya Fuga, not Fugu. Hmm. Fugu is the poisonous pufferfish that many in Japan consider a delicacy. Yet so another sorry. potentially dangerous bit of Japanese culture. That's right. Fugu on cartoons. Look out. It's a lethal <laughs> cocktail. Stay away from Japan. Uh, folks, don't. It's a wonderful place. Uh, our non-lethal cocktail recipes are all online. Dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest today is English singer and songwriter Nick Lowe. He's best known for his hit single, Cruel to be Kind, and for What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, the song he wrote for his fellow pub rocker Elvis Costello. Mm. His latest album is called Quality Street. Here's Nick to tell us about it and to provide a quality Yuletide list. Hi, everyone. This is Nick Lowe here. I'm in town to uh, tell everyone about my latest album, Quality Street, seasonally themed for your convenience, which means it's a Christmas record. The idea to do a Christmas record was not mine. In fact, I was quite snooty about it. It's very prevalent in the UK. You know, people think that uh, to make a Christmas record is, well, is what we call naff. It's like uncool, but it, it, it's uncool like Perry Como. It's very sort of cardigan and pipe and slippers. <laughs> Here are a few of my Christmas favourites, which I don't think are, are naff at all. Maybe this Christmas will mean something more. Maybe this year love will appear. I think this is a lovely song. This is um, Maybe This Christmas by my great friend Ron Sexsmith. I know lots of people in the music business, and some of them I'm not really crazy about their music. But that is a mere detail. I really like them. But occasionally, I'm a great fan of their music as well. And Ron is definitely one of those people. It's hard to beat. Maybe there'll be an open door. Maybe the star that shone before. I heard Elvis Costello, who's also a big fan of his, say something along the lines of he lives next to his own private tributary, leading to the Melody Lake. Most of his stuff, it's very accessible, but it's got real soul. And that's a real difficult thing to pull off, having something that doesn't sound sappy and wet, but also is can move you. Maybe this the uh, second song is a little ska, a little reggae music. I think I'd choose this one by the Silvertones, Bling Bling Christmas. I love Scar and Reggae, but I'm one of those people who sort of... Uh, yeah, I've got to be careful what I say here, you know. But I'm one of those people who think that actually Bob Marley sort of messed up Scar and Reggae music. I think the same thing in a way about the Beatles as well, because they made people think that anyone could write a song. They can't. With the bling bling lights, chicken and wine, have a merry Christmas time. They used a lot of stand-up bass, you know, uh, there's lots of horns on it. I love the horns. Merry Christmas. Why not a reggae tune for Christmas? Just because it doesn't snow there. <laughs> In every other respect, it's absolutely spot on. With the bling bling lights, chicken and wine, have a Merry Christmas time. You may not have one. Everybody else has have a Merry Christmas time. 
my third dinner party uh, record will be something a little more uh, jumping. Christmas Time in Louisiana by Johnny Allen. He's the sort of Cajun Elvis Presley, really. He's a great, great singer and a great guy. I'm rather name-dropping here with me and my fancy friends. He hasn't been well lately. The last time I saw him was when uh, I played down in New Orleans with my band. Now he's on the mend, and so happy Christmas, Johnny. If I was going to spin one of my Christmas tunes at this party, I'd have to um, do Christmas at the airport, just so I could show off. The song is a bit of nonsense, really. It's a bloke who's trying to make it home for Christmas. His delayed flight is rescheduled and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he finds that the whole place is closed and locked. I was quite alone. Actually, somebody pointed out to me the other day and they said, well, it sounds like he doesn't really mind. <laughs> it sounds like he's rather pleased about it. Christmas at the airport I took a set of x-rays They came out rather well A Yuletide playlist from musician Nick Lowe. His new album is called Quality Street, a seasonal selection for all the family. All right, coming up, actor Jeremy Renner tells us about the sport he gave up for his own sanity. The game put me in therapy. There you go. There's your, there's your clip. We'll take it, Jeremy. Yeah. That and other stuff you didn't know when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Nancy Sinatra walks all over your etiquette questions. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Jeremy Renner. He was nominated for an Oscar for his performance as the maverick leader of a bomb disposal team in the Hurt Locker. Two years later, he was nominated again for his role in The Town. Since then, he's moved on to action blockbusters, playing Hawkman in The Avengers and taking over from Matt Damon as the lead in the Bourne films. Busy guy. He's a very busy man. His latest movie is the comedy drama American Hustle, directed by David O. Russell. It's, I wonder if he meant that to rhyme. Yeah. It's the story of a con man forced <laughs> to work with the FBI. Renner plays a mayor who gets enmeshed in a sting operation. Here's a clip in which the con man, played by Christian Bale, explains his code of honor to Renner. I, I believe that you should treat people the way that you want to be treated. Yeah. Didn't yeah. Jesus say that? Or something? Man. I think also always take a favor over money. I think Jesus said that as well. I don't know if he said the second one, but he might have said the first one. <laughs> when American Hustle begins, the screen has the words, some of this actually happened. Yes, yeah. I, I, I always interpret it like some of the could have happened or might have happened, but yeah. that's just, you know, a great way to start the movie because that's uh, very David O. Russell, if you ask me. And it lets people know that this is based on, partially based on a true story, and you're playing a character, Carmine Polito, who is based on a real person. How much of your portrayal is fact and how much is fiction? Yeah, Carmine Polito was, was drawn from a, a real-life character who had just recently passed away. His name was Angelo Arochetti, and he was the mayor of uh, Camden, New Jersey, and the leader of the State Assembly of, uh, of New Jersey. He had this quote of saying that all people are good and be good to all people. I'm not sure if that even made it into the movie, but I certainly based the character on that sort of belief system and that sort of moral compass. You've talked about in, in other roles you've played about how you learn something from each of your characters. What did you learn from Carmine? 
Uh, I don't know. If or, or this experience. Well, the experience is different than what I sort of learned from diving into just the character. The character sort of solidified what I had in common with him. You know, I have to have something in common with the characters. And it was sort of these sort of belief systems. So that's what I really gravitated to, him being a very family man, simple in how he speaks. There's no, there's no veneer. There's no smoke and mirrors. It's all pretty sure I'm a very straightforward guy, and that's what I kind of put into Carmine. Learning throughout the entire process was ultimately was about being fearless and about trust and about failing, at least allowing to fail, which means you can stretch, not being afraid to stretch and fall on your face. I mean, David shoots in a very interesting way where it's a world. It's shot in 360s, so you're, you're literally in a three-dimensional play. Everything you've learned or I have learned prior to, in any movie just goes out the window. Well, this movie is unlike a lot of the other films you're known for. You're now part of three major movie franchises. You are the center of the new Bourne films. You are part of the Avengers films. You are now part of the Mission Impossible films. And on the one hand, that's amazing. But on the other hand, I wonder if that sort of success hinders your ability to enjoy that success. Like maybe you can't go skiing because if you do, you'll break your leg and then three big movies will grind to a halt. I don't break my legs. <laughs> so you just don't do things where you might break your legs? Oh, uh, yeah, I, pr- I probably do some. I mean, you can cross the street in New York and you can get, your, you know, come on, your life's in your own hands. I don't know if it really shifts anything. I don't feel accountable or responsible to my work except when I'm working. Like, I haven't worked out in a year and a half, brother. And, like, I know I'm going to have to uh, get in shape for this next year, but... Um, I don't. I can't live my life always through work. Now I have a, a family of my own. That's what I'm accountable to. All right. Well, I have a question about your life outside of work. By all accounts, you're a pretty savvy real estate investor. You flipped something like 15 homes, made a bunch of money doing it. Do you have any advice for me, a humble radio guy who rents right now and maybe wants to... Um, I, I did it by doing it with uh, one of my best friends who's like my brother. We didn't have any money. I mean, I had a contract to a, a movie. I still had zero money. I'm like, that's how I kind of got a loan with a little money he had. And like, we got the spot. It would help if I had a movie contract, though, I think. That, that would help. But, you know, to try to create a little bit of freedom in the capitalist society we live in, it's nice to, you know, know that you parked money in something that uh, will keep the rain off your head. This is going to be my last interview ever. I'm going to quit radio and just go into investing after this. <laughs> I would, no, you got to diversify. You got to keep it all. You keep all, you all right. jug, spin a lot of plates. All right, all right, all right. I will, uh, I'll keep both things going on. So let me ask you a, a question that we ask all of our guests. What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? <laughs> um, well, at the moment, it's talking about my hair for American Hustle. Yeah, which is this beautiful bouffant. Yeah, yeah, but I understand why people ask about it. You know, it makes a statement, that thing. But, like, you know, it's the last thing I want to be talking about. But, yeah. It's the most hair you've ever had in a movie, though. <laughs> I think ever in my life, yeah. So that's, yeah, and it opens on Christian Bale's hair, but your hair actually ends up taking the cake. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think that's subjective. All right. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know, something you've never talked about in interviews before. Um, the how lucky I am to be sitting here now. Because there's so many different ways I could have gone in life. Because I had many passions. I mean, I literally could be a pro bowler right now. You were a bowler? I was a bowler, yeah. My, my grandfather worked in a bowling center, owned a bowling center. My dad managed a bowling center, owned a bowling center. I grew up inside of a bowling center. I worked in a bowling center. You pretty good? I, well, when I was bowling, yeah. And the game put me in therapy. There you go. There's your, there's your clip. 
Wait, the bowling put you in therapy? The sport of bowling put me in therapy. Not physical therapy because you hurt your wrist? But. No, no, no. Like, literally, like, you know, like, you know. You're like, my life is in the gutter. <laughs> kind of like, it actually had to do with, um, it's one of the few sports that you only compete against yourself. Uh, even tennis, you compete against one other person. There's very few sports where it's only you, then you're competing against your own score, essentially. So I had an issue with that. And because I, I got to a certain level at a very early age, you know, I had a 210 average at the age of 12, 13. Wow. And I was bowling against like, you know, full adults. And I didn't have the emotional capacity or spiritual capacity to overcome my own, you know, anger or frustrations from not bowling consistently enough. So we're not going to see a bowling alley in one of these houses you're developing? Uh, no, no. People, I, I can't do it. Like, people bowl for fun. It's like, even if I picked up a ball today, it's like... Oh, we're gonna do this. Like we gotta, we gotta get after it now. Like I can't just lay up. Your friends don't like bowling with you. <laughs> no, no, I don't like bowling with them because they can have fun doing it. I can't. <laughs> Enrico, just to give you a sense of Jeremy's home flipping prowess. Okay. This August, a home he purchased three years ago for seven million dollars yeah. sold for twenty-four million dollars. Oh couple years so basically his his whole hollywood career is a labor of love exactly a hobby yeah basically he does the born films for free he donates his performance it's unique uh, in hollywood everyone fear not rico and i will not be quitting our jobs no. uh, but hey if you have hot property tips you can send them to dinnerpartydownload.org for kicks yeah no reason just want to see them To eavesdrop. Liesl Schillinger contributes literary criticism to the New York Times, so she's read a lot of authors in her day. Today we overhear her reading the work of an author you've likely never heard of, who she ranks among the best. Hi, I'm Liesl Schillinger. I'm a book critic and translator. And a few years ago, I had the distinct pleasure of reviewing a new collection of stories by a writer I had never heard of before. It just stopped me in my tracks. This man was writing like Poe, like Kafka, like Gogol. Sigismund Krzyzynowski was writing in Moscow in the 1920s. Even though he was very active in the literary world, he censored himself because he was afraid he'd get in trouble with the Soviet authorities. And it wasn't until 1989 that his stories came into the light of day in Russian, and only recently have they been published into English. New York Review of Books has been bringing them out. And they've just now released a new collection of his stories, Autobiography of a Corpse, which is much more playful and less morbid than it may sound. These passages are from a story called The Runaway Fingers. 2,000 ears turned towards the pianist Heinrich Dorn as he calmly adjusted the wicker seat of his swivel chair with long white fingers. The tails of his dress coat hung down from the chair while his fingers leapt onto the piano's black case and cantered down the straight road paved with ivory keys. Polished nails flashing, they first set off from a high octave C to the treble's last glassily tinkling keys. The fingers wanted to go farther. They stamped distinctly and fractionally on the last two keys. Eyes here and there in the hall narrowed. What a trill! The fingers then spun around on their tapered ends and, leaping over one another, began galloping back. Two thousand oracles leaned toward the stage. A familiar nervous trembling seized the fingers. 
they suddenly, in one violent bound, catapulted across 12 keys, coming to rest on C, E-sharp, G-B. Pause. And again, the fingers raced away in a rapid passage toward the end of the keyboard. The pianist's right hand made to pull back, but its galloping fingers refused. On they flew at breakneck speed. The quarter-octave's glassy tinkles flashed past, the treble's auxiliary keys squeaked. With a desperate tug, the fingers suddenly wrenched themselves free, hand and all, from the pianist's cuff, and jumped down onto the floor. The parquet's waxed wood struck their joints a painful blow, but the fingers, without missing a beat, picked themselves up and, mincing along on their pink shields of nails, vaulting high into the air with great arpeggio-like leaps, haired toward the hall's exit. There wasn't a minute to lose. All about them, people were beginning to whisper. The whispers became murmurs, the murmurs a hubbub, the hubbub an outcry, and the outcry the roar and riot of a thousand feet. Catch them! Catch them! Other members of the audience rushed up to the pianist. He was slumped on his chair in a deep faint, his left hand flopped on his knee. The empty cuff of his right still lay on the keyboard. But the runaway fingers had no time for Dorn. They were sprinting prestissimo down a Turkish runner toward the brow of the stairs. With wails and squeals, elbows elbowing elbows, people scrambled out of the way. In one masterly bound, the fingers sailed over the threshold and out onto the street. The riot and racket broke off. The blank, benighted square, wreathed in a yellow necklace of lamplights, gaped in silence. Liesl Schillinger, reading from Sigismund Krzyzianowski's story, The Runaway Fingers. That's just the beginning of those fingers' journey. The rest is in his new collection, Autobiography of a Corpse. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download, which gets a big hand from American public media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, speaking of parties, uh, as a part Italian, one of my favorite parties is called the Feast of Seven Fishes. Sure, the Christmas Eve gathering. That is right. On Christmas Eve, Italians traditionally eat a meal with seven different kinds of seafood in it. I think people kind of figured that part out. (laughs) It's it's a pretty self-explanatory feast. Anyway, here in L.A., the Michelin-starred chef Michael Simarusti cooks up a Seven Fishes feast every Christmas Eve at his seafood-centric restaurant Providence. I sat down at his chef's table to talk about it, but I started by asking him to list the most traditional Seven Fishes dishes. You know, I don't know if there are like seven traditional fish that you would serve because I think in Italy, I think it's all like regionally based. So you would use the seven fish that come from your region, you know, and of course it's going to change all the time anyway, because, you know, as any fisherman will tell you, you know, they don't all bite all the time. So you got to kind of settle for whatever's there. All right. So what's biting for you this week? I'd say the three that we're using that are maybe, you know, sort of non-traditional we're doing uh, Nantucket Bay Scallops as one of our courses. They're absolutely delicious. They're like little gumdrops. You can just pop them in your mouth raw. 
um, which is really Wait, really yeah oh absolutely you know every time every year when scallops come into season which is re- usually in November you know the very first batch that we get I just go into the refrigerator and grab two or three and just pop them in my mouth raw because they're not with us all year long so you really come to appreciate them for what they are which is you know one of the best shellfish that we have in this country so you're, I'm assuming that you're going to want to make sure that you've sourced them well you don't just want to go down to like the corner bodega no absolutely not you know we have a, we have a source we've been using for years that is in Brooklyn New York you know he's one of the most discerning fishmongers in the country and his scallops are consistently excellent all right so find that guy and yeah. put and that's it just put them in a bowl yeah chili flake satsuma tangerine really good olive oil a little bit of salt some mint and some toasted pistachio and you're done all right so not as easy as putting you know chips in a bowl but still sounds delightful um something else on your menu is monkfish which I kind of know the few times I've had it as being this kind of slippery, not very flavorful thing. Well, you've been, you've been eating the wrong monkfish. Monkfish, it's got, a, it's got another name, which is the poor man's lobster. So monkfish, you know, they live on the bottom of the sea. They eat whatever comes to them. They're, they're also known as anglerfish. They have that little thing on top of their head. Oh, yeah. Absolutely delicious. Just moved from the red list by the Monterey Bay Aquarium into the yellow list. So they used to be on the avoid list, and now they're on the yellow list, which is a good thing. Monterey Bay Aquarium does sustainable fish list. Right. So that means it's a little bit better to eat this year. I guess. Absolutely. Well, you know, they did some research, and they found that the fishery is healthier than what they, what they had thought before. And also the fishing practices are, are more sustainable now. And so I've always been a fan of monkfish. But for years, we shunned it because it was on the red list. Mm. So we're doing that this year. We're going to roast it on the bone, and we're going to serve it family style. All right, one more. I mean, one thing that I would like to hear about is eel. Because yeah. I know that that's actually pretty traditional in parts of Italy. Yeah. They, they used to have huge eel catches mm-hmm. in some parts of Italy. But, I mean, nobody really makes eel in America, I think, other than, you know, you get them broiled mm-hmm. in sushi. Would you ever think of doing that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, this is probably the first year, maybe this year and last year, the first two years that we haven't served eel. And I always did traditionally because my grandmother used to make eel for the Feast of the Seven Fishes every year. And I still have images of them. Like she, she, would, she would take them, cut them around the head, and then skin them, like hang them in a doorway and skin them with a pair of pliers. No wonder you yeah. have that lingering yeah. in your head. Yeah, it sounds you like a nightmare. That. Yeah, you don't forget that. And then I, I remember she would flour them cut them into sections, flour them, and then throw them in a pan and fry them in olive oil and then add them to tomato sauce and braise them. And I still have an image in my head of like these little bits of eel wriggling in the pan still because you can't kill an eel no matter what you do. I mean, they are just unbelievable, hardy little buggers. But we're not using them this year. It's not a sustainable fish, and so we decided not to use it anymore. Yeah, my understanding is that it's because they're fed other fish because they're carnivores, mm-hmm. and the, the impact on other fish is huge mm-hmm. to keep well, there's carnivorous eels fed. Yeah, there's that. And then there's also the fact that, you know, most of that eel, unagi, which is a freshwater eel, they are, in spite of the fact that they might have been farm raised in China or Japan or wherever else, most of them originated here in the United States. So they're wild harvested little tiny baby eels, which are called elvers. You know, a little bag of baby elvers will go for three or four or $500 a pound live. Mm-hmm. And then those eels are then shipped to the east. But, uh, you know, that's a problem because if you're taking all the baby eels out of an ecosystem, then they're never going to mature to become big eels. And And have other baby eels. Yeah, exactly. And as a kid, I actually have, we we used to fish for eels in the middle of the night. When I was a kid, we would catch them all night long, like five, six, seven a night. And now I was just back at this same fishing camp in Princeton uh, two years ago, and we didn't catch a single one. And we tried every night. All right. Let's let's try to end this on an upbeat note then. What what are you replacing them with? Well, we usually do that with a risotto, uh, the eel. And so this year what we're doing is we're doing a risotto with uh, little neck cl- or middle neck clams, which are like one step larger than little necks. 
So it's middle neck clam and abalone risotto. I know the first thing that anybody at home is going to be thinking is how do you make clams not rubbery? One quick word of advice to them? Clams, you just got to treat them with, you know, respect. So number one... Even though they don't have brains. Yes. You got to, number one, either stir them in just at the very last moment so that they're just cooking for a brief period of time. Or eat them raw, which is really a, just an absolutely fantastic way to eat them. You, you do these raw too. Like it's, uh, what I'm learning here is that really you don't do a whole lot of cooking at your yeah. Feast of Seven well, you know, Fishes. Hey, clams on the half shell is like one of God's great pleasures, I think. Michael Simoreski, chef at the Michelin-starred restaurant Providence in L.A., and Brendan, money-making idea. You ready? Okay. Nantucket scallop-flavored gumdrops. <laughs> it's going to wow. be a big one. We're really entrepreneurial this week, that's but um, I don't think that's going to displace gummy bears for some reason. <laughs> I'm going to work on it. All right. I think you you're do wrong. that. Meanwhile, folks, we're going to take a break. <laughs> Coming up, Nancy Sinatra and ex-poet laureate Billy Collins. Together at last. That's right. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from Beyonce. And Billy Collins stops by to chat about and read from his new collection of poems. To paraphrase another American poet, our show contains multitudes. It's pretty eclectic. Yeah. And today. yet not everyone who listens to it is well-behaved. Sad. So, for the politeness challenged... We offer weekly etiquette lessons. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Nancy Sinatra. In 1966, she stepped out from the shadow of her legendary dad, Frank, by cutting the pop single, These Boots Are Made For Walking. It became a 60s anthem and taught millions how to go-go. She followed up with 13 more hits, including the theme for the James Bond flick, You Only Live Twice, which is amazing. Her new album, Shifting Gears, comes out digitally this month, and it is an apt title because she croons lush versions of pop standards, including As Time Goes By. You must remember this, a kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time. And Nancy, welcome. Thank you. So good to be here with you guys. Thanks for coming. So Nancy, this is a more classic orchestrated sound than the rock and pop uh, you're known for. Why, Why the shift in tone? You know what? The tracks are recorded over time. Every time I had a huge show, by huge, I mean 45-piece orchestra, 50-piece orchestra <laughs> mm-hmm. on stage, yeah. like at a, huge. a big hotel in Las Vegas or somewhere, Yeah, I, we would get these wonderful new charts written by people like Don Costa and Billy Strange, who was my guy, and uh, it made me realize, good grief, if we don't put these on a tape someplace... We're going to lose them. We'll never have them again. So hmm. I decided to get the tracks recorded over the years as they occurred. And it um, takes people into my showroom a little bit, you know, with, yeah. with the big orchestra. This is I, I have to say, this is a style I think most people would more associate with your father. Is this a style that you've always been comfortable with and just never really delved into? Or is it maybe something that you've become more comfortable with as your career has progressed? Mostly I'm happiest with my rock band. My band I call the Kick-Ass Band. And, <laughs> and we've been on three-week tours on a bus. And it's just me and the guys, which is 
never my favorite thing to do, but you know, it's <laughs> we do stop in hotels once in a while and get a shower. Yeah. But that's the fun way to do it because you can play for people who can't afford to go to a big showroom can pay to go into a rock club, you know. And we've done yeah, that yeah. pretty much all over the world and it's really fun. All right, well you obviously know how to comport yourself whether you're in a large hotel in Las Vegas or in a small club. So this makes you perfect to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Are you ready? Uh-oh. I'll try. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not the most well-behaved person on the planet. The name of your band isn't exactly <laughs> polite. Yeah. You can tell them how to misbehave. You can take it anywhere you want. Okay. So this first question comes from Stephanie from Williamstown, New Jersey. Stephanie writes, Is it okay to play a musician's songs on the stereo when I invite them over for a party? Is that welcomed by the musician or not? Oh, sure. You better believe it. I mean, people record (laughs) stuff to have it played. And my friends love hearing their music in my house or wherever. Really? They're not embarrassed? No. Most of them have great egos, and they'd probably be... (laughs) She lives in L.A. They'd probably be offended if I didn't play them. (laughs) But surely people have done this to you. When you go visit somebody, do they sometimes put on, you know, these boots? Doesn't that put you on the spot a little? No, I don't care. Are you kidding? I'm, I'm flattered. You know, they might play boots. Probably not anything that I would like anyway. What would, but <laughs> what would you prefer? My 2004 album, my California Girl album, you know, just mm-hmm. other stuff other than boots. Well, Stephanie, if you invite Nancy Sinatra and her kick-ass band to your house, yes. play their music. Play our music! But probably pick, pick something new. <laughs> yeah, not these boots. Uh, Tara in Minneapolis writes the following. Is there a tactful way to tell a friend her prettiness would shine through even more with a different hairstyle. And this is perfect for you because you had the best and highest hair of the (laughs) 1960s, basically. Oh, dear. Tactful? uh, Probably not. Um, I have had this happen in my life where, well, a lot of people have criticized my hair, especially my sister, but I've had (laughs) uh, friends that I've wanted to help out. So what I've done is offered them, instead of a birthday present, I've offered them an appointment with my hairdresser. Oh, man. <laughs> Classic <laughs> gift. That's what I want for Christmas, Rico. <laughs> yeah. I want an appointment it. with Nancy's hairdresser. Well, his, his name is Eric Serena. He's in Los Angeles if you want to have a great haircut. All right. There's your recommendation. By the way, we have a follow-up for this that is actually pretty good for those of us in radio. The question is from Holly in Los Angeles, and she writes, How does one sport the best teased bouffant hairdo when one's work depends on constantly putting on and removing headphones. <laughs> that is the bane of my existence. And oh. Brendan's soon. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, there. if I have to go out somewhere after work, I will separate the front part of my hair, like across mm-hmm. uh, from ear to ear across the back, I'll push it forward, and then I'll put the headset on, and then I'll throw the hair back over the headset so that it's oh, not squished. Nice move. The other thing I do is I'll just take the band of the headphones, put it back behind your head, shove it all forward, and you look ridiculous, but the hair is <laughs> poofing out in front. Well, that's what's important It's how it looks afterwards. <laughs> Isn't it? You bet. So I thought only Robert Smith from The Cure did that with his hair, but (laughs) there you go, Tara in Minneapolis and Holly in L.A. We have a hairstylist recommendation and some headphone tricks. Uh, This question is not related to hair. (laughs) It comes from Kim in Chicago. Kim writes, when talking to someone with a famous parent, is it appropriate Mm -hmm. to make a comment about being a fan of said parent 
or is it best not to mention the famous parent? Who could she be talking yeah, about? Not <laughs> mentioning any names. Well, it's a hypothetical. In my case, I've heard every possible Frank story. So it's probably better with me to just talk about the weather or something. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I'll be polite. You know, I'm not going to say never mind and walk away. I mean, but you're his daughter. Do people forget that you're that this is actually your dad and tell you stories that maybe are inappropriate? <laughs> no, 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 not that yeah. kind of story. But <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I met your dad in so and so New Jersey and saw his shows eighteen times, and I've heard all of that, yeah, yeah. which is okay. I mean, mm-hmm. when you think about it, isn't it very sweet? It yeah. is. Yeah. But so no, I don't think it's uh, inappropriate. All right, okay. that's, that's very big of you. I should say. It's not just her hair that's big, Rico. <laughs> it's Nancy's heart. It's her heart. I know. You can. That's how. About, that'll be the name of your next album. Big hair, big heart. You know what you should do? You should ask my daughters that question. Oh, <laughs> there you Amanda go. Amanda and AJ. They may. Not, they may have a totally different answer for you. Yeah, but yeah. they're as sick of these boots as you are. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no, I'm never sick of it. Please don't misunderstand. I don't sing it anyway. I just start it. And the audience sings it. (laughs) (laughs) You keep saying you got something for me. Something you call love, but confess. Nancy Sinatra, her latest album is called Shifting Gears. And Brendan, bouffants abound on our show today. (laughs) We had Jeremy Renner earlier and now Nancy. Well, Nancy did grow up in Jersey City, which is oh. right up the turnpike from Renner's character in American Hustle. <laughs> so maybe it's not surprising, is no, what you're saying. Exactly. Maybe we should have expected it. All right. Well, <laughs> people, uh, whether it is etiquette advice or hair advice, we are happy to find answers to your questions. Just send them to us. Head over to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Are you ready, Boots? Start walking. Billy Collins was officially America's Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2003, but unofficially, he has been our reigning national bard for much longer than that. His wit and accessible style have won him lots of awards and lots of fans who read his many, many books. His latest collection of poems is called Aimless Love, and Billy, I'm guessing that in some ways, a poet is always working, so I was wondering if perhaps you had any flashes of inspiration as you made your way to our studio today. A flash is a little strong. There are a couple inklings. I mean, I took a walk in Central Park. Okay. I do have a poem in this new book called Solvator Ambulando, which is Latin for it is solved by walking. Mm-hmm. And the poem is sort of about, it's about that uh, belief that if you have a problem, you take it out for a walk and then you don't turn around until you have some clarification. Mm. So the poem really is about someone who just walks for, you know, hundreds of miles without clarification. But but walking is always a good time to pick up some some things. So there were there were some dogs, there was some bird activity. Mm. Um, I was gonna say as a poet, do you look for problems? You're kind of like, well maybe I'll go find something out there. Well you it's I think if you look you won't find. Mm. You have to I think you just it's if you're closed off, you're not gonna see anything. And if you're Kind of greedily hunting down something, you're not going to find it either. Mm. It's it's some kind of balanced openness or vigilance or attentiveness. That brings me to one of the poems I'd like to have you read called Cheerios. Okay. Poem called Cheerios. One bright morning in a restaurant in Chicago, as I waited for my eggs and toast, I opened the Tribune only to discover that I was the same age as Cheerios. 
Indeed, I was a few months older than Cheerios, for today, the newspaper announced, was the 70th birthday of Cheerios, whereas mine had occurred earlier in the year. Already I could hear them whispering behind my stooped and threadbare back, why that dude's older than Cheerios, the way they used to say, why that's as old as the hills, only the hills are much older than Cheerios, or any American breakfast cereal, and more noble and enduring are the hills, I surmised, as a bar of sunlight illuminated my orange juice. So is that an example of just being attentive? And I think so. I mean, I hate to say that, I hate that expression, true story, but yeah, I was <laughs> sitting there waiting for my eggs and toast, and uh, and that was in the Tribune. I had, you know, uh, being... Uh, and any time you turn an, uh, a, a, a birthday that ends at a zero, it, it comes as quite a shock. Mm. In fact, I made up a word. The noun is incredimentia. Okay. And incredimentia is the inability to believe how <laughs> old you have become. Yeah. Yeah, so that was – I was as old as Cheerios and then I thought – I think it's also just recognizing that, that that seemed to have some poetic potential. What is that? Is can you describe that um, that emotion? Um, I'm not sure. It's it's more than just uh, an interesting experience. It's something. It's a really the result of an opportunistic version of experience. Yeah. Well, you look at age several ways uh, in, in the new poems. Another one uh, I'd like to ask you to read is to my favorite high school. To my favorite seventeen year old high school. To girl. my favorite seventeen year old high school girl and. Age figures into this poem beyond the title. So if you could read that for us. Okay. To my favorite 17-year-old high school girl, do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you couldn't have done that alone. So never mind. You're fine just as you are. You are love for simply being yourself. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room. No, wait, I mean he had invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15, but then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria, at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15, or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosca at 17, we think you are special by just being you, playing with your food and staring into space. By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that narrator. Well, the narrator is a uh, presumably a parent who's uh, just reacting to the slacker dumb or whatever it is of of contemporary adolescence and uh, unfairly, of course, bringing up all these impossible role models. I mean, beginning with the – it took 18 years to build the Parthenon yeah. and he's thinking, well, if she started at, as an infant yeah. – 
and then he checks himself. But he's kind of a literary guy. He knows yeah. about Franz Schubert and all this stuff. But basically, he's just trying to get his daughter motivated, but in all the wrong ways, of course, by comparing her to these uh, success stories. These greats. Just one last question that I was thinking about as I was reading your poems. Is there a hard part of being a poet? Like, like what's the hardest part of Well, I can't help this, but Max, uh, the humorist Max Beerbaum had the answer to that. Okay. He said the most difficult thing about being a poet is knowing what to do with the remaining 23 and a half hours of the day. (laughs) Poet Billy Collins. His new collection is called Aimless Love. And you can hear a couple more poems from it and a longer cut of that interview at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Nice. Also, Rico, rest assured, I told Billy that he can use one of those extra hours listening to our show. Oh, a good idea. I feel, I feel like our show is very free verse. That's fair to say. But uh, he will have to wait until next time because, people, that is the Dinner Party Download for today. We hope you and your families emerge triumphant in all of this holiday week's many gatherings. Jackson Musker is the associate producer of the Dinner Party Download. Brittany Martin gives us web assistance. James Delahousey and Davey Kim are our interns. Charlton Thorpe provided engineering assistance. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Late last week, Beyonce surprised the music world by releasing a new album of 14 songs unannounced. Mm. One week later, it's on top of the charts, and a physical copy hasn't even been distributed yet. Here's a track from it called XO. Bon appétit. Your love is bright as ever. Even in the shadows. Baby, kiss me. Before they turn the lights out. Your heart is glowing And I'm crashing to you Baby, kiss me Before they turn the lights out Before they turn the lights out Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis. No, no! Oh, my God. My bouffant is stuck. Ah! People, why do we have a ceiling fan in the studio?